I have like very vivid memories of that whole scenario going down because it was a good lesson. It's like, look, moving up in your career isn't just about being really good at the job that you're doing now. It's about getting skills for the next role. It's about the, not politics, but managing up, you know, and those are just things I didn't appreciate. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have Jake Dunlap, founder and CEO of Scaled. And uh, we are in person here in Austin recording from the studio. Welcome, Jake. Awesome. I'm excited for this. It's good to see another face, socially distanced, of course. But You're at least six feet away, two table lengths. And um, yeah, but it's fun to be able to do this in person. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So obviously we go way back. I was trying to figure out if it was... 08 or 09 when yeah. we met. When did you move oh, to no, San Francisco? Like, yeah, 09. And um, we met back in the day at Career Builder. That's right, but, CB. Um, originally, the other CB. The, the other, the other <laughs> CB. Right, exactly, right? It was always interesting <laughs> to be CB working at CB. So let's start from you know a little bit of the beginning of your career. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in rural Iowa in Primgar, 900 people. Right. I've never actually, I've never actually been back. I want to go back at some point. But I grew up Midwest, moved to Kansas City when I was seven, grew up in Kansas City, big Chiefs Royals fan. If you know me, you know that. Royals are <laughs> off to a, a hot start. So I'm excited for baseball. Usually what happens with being from Kansas City is like, you're really excited about baseball for about 45 days. And then it moves full blown into Chiefs mode, you know, like what's going to happen at the Chiefs. So, so yeah, grew up, you know, kind of middle class in a town called Lee Summit, which is about like 20 minutes outside of Kansas City. And, you know, still go back from time to time, but uh, mostly for, for games nowadays. If anyone follows you on LinkedIn or any of the other social channels, you are, in my mind, and I think most people in our industry, considered a real sales guru. And so, you know, how did you get into the industry in the first place? Yeah, I mean, sales is really interesting. So when I went to college, I went to college in Springfield, Missouri State, was known as Southwest Missouri State at the time, okay? It was the second largest bi-directional school. Texas State, actually, ironically. What is a bi-directional school? Southwest. So it's like, it's not just South. It's Southwest. So <laughs> we had 20,000 students. So it's like, you know, it was a big school. So went to school there. And, you know, look, I worked almost full-time in college. And one of the first jobs I got because it paid the most was telemarketing. And so I did, I sold vacation packages. I sold long distance. For those of you who don't know what that is, you used to have a phone and you would have to pay like a certain cent per minute which seems insane nowadays. And so, um, you know, I learned some basic skills there and I was kind of naturally good at it. And then when I did graduate, I wanted to go work in sports, right? I know we'll get into that. And some of the most, you know, not easiest, but the jobs that you can get in sports coming out of college, unless you're a baseball scout or something, which I did, was in sales. And it was really... When it came to really, you know, realizing like, I enjoy this, this is going to be my thing was probably like a year or two in, honestly, my first year or so. And I had this guy named Brian Ross, shout out to Brian, older guy who had transitioned from finance to sports. And 
you know, he started getting me reading sales books. Hey, Jake, what about this one? And I, and, and I, and I like to read. And I, and I just started to realize, man, sales is just, a, just this like complex, you know, human psychology, sociology, and starting to incorporate some of those techniques. And so I think I realized pretty quickly, like I had that kind of like natural talent and or just because I was, I was okay to get out of my comfort zone, which if you know me, you know that I'm okay to make, make, things, okay. make things a little awkward or weird uh, from time to time. And I think that that was it. It was really, you know, that first like year or two years, I'm like, this is, this is really interesting to me. And it satisfies a lot of my natural curiosities around, you know, I'm a lifelong learner, always growing, always pushing myself to be better. And sales checked a lot of those, those boxes for me really early. And, you know, when you're naturally kind of good at something and you get those two things together, it was, a, I think, a win-win. Yeah, sports to me always seems like one of those industries that just seems sexy, yeah, right? And that everyone wants to be in it. Yeah. And so, you know, how did you get into uh, that industry to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I mean... I, guess, I was pretty fortunate, I guess, in retrospect. You know, a lot of times you have to you go work at like a minor league team. I did an internship in Springfield with a minor league football team. Maybe that helped. But, I, you know, there's a website. If you're in sports, you know it. They're actually, ironically, a current client of ours right now for a technology implementation called Teamwork. Teamwork Online is like the sports website that you go to. And so I applied. I applied to a bunch of different jobs. You know, I flew down and, and I'll, I'll just kind of give a little bit, you know, kind of career advice for people. And if you follow me, you've heard me tell this story. But right before I went down for the interview, I had a professor like, bring a business plan. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, just bring an idea of how you would do the job. I said, okay, like that sounds like a good idea. And so I repeated that multiple times throughout my career and almost always got the job or promotion over a lot of people because of that. And so I brought this business plan that said how I'm going to sell Tampa Bay Rays tickets. And it talked about like, I looked up like the demographics and growth sectors and where people, I mean, I just Googled stuff, right? Or maybe it's web crawler back then. I don't know, like some version of Google. <laughs> Shout out to web crawler, if you know what that is. And put together this like four or five page business plan, had a final, drove to Kansas City that night, flew out that next morning, did the interview, flew back that night, and then finished finals the next week and got the job. And so I think because I came prepared and I had done sales before, I think back to like how terrible I was in the interview. It definitely was not the interview. They're like, what do you want to do with your career? I'm like, I want to be the general manager. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I'm just like, right, I want to be a GM. Like, that's like the head person. Right? I definitely blew the interview. But I think because I'd done enough and had the experience, I ended up getting the job. And then I went, you know, I went to the Coyotes. I had a lot of success in Tampa. I went from group sales to season ticket to managing with another guy, Brian, the inside sales team. So I, I moved up relatively quickly, went to Tampa. Uh, you know, just for more opportunity. I was like, what, 24 or five at the time, just being like, I deserve more, you know, like, I deserve more. I, I'm not appreciated. We got a new boss. I'll, what exactly happened? I, we got a new boss. And this guy, he came from the Warriors. And here I am, I'm God's gift to sales, right? Like, and he hasn't come down and met me yet. He hasn't like, why hasn't he came down and, and said it? Like, talk to me. And so I, I made my boss, poor Clark. He's actually the, the head of sales here at Austin FC now. He's a CRO. I made him go to this meeting in, in Clark. The first question I asked this VP, I'm like, so, so just tell me what you're all about. And the guy <laughs> looks at me, the disgust in this guy's face, he's, it was just like, what I'm about. And so I got a new job, you know, before it escalated. But I realized like, yeah, that was not, not smart. So sports is interesting, but you know. So why is that not a smart question, right? Like, at, it, yeah. I think maybe there's like a tact. I think like delivery. Might right? have been the tone. Yeah, I think it could have been delivery. Like there's definitely a sense of like entitlement that came with it. Like, hey, I, so look, we haven't met yet. It's like, what are you all about? You know, like it was a little bit like I'm interviewing you. 
which I probably thought I was at the time. So I think that, look, in an interview, you want to ask questions or even in those first interactions. But I do think, you know, you want to be tactful at times, which I'm, you'll see there's a theme in my career where sometimes that's been an issue. (laughs) No. (laughs) So you worked for the Coyotes. Yeah. Now, was that the job that you interviewed when when there was 35 other people that were interviewing? Yep. And then... So was that also the F off situation? That was the F off no. situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that situation. Did you too. actually tell the person that? No, I did. Well, yes, yes, I did. But it wasn't in like a negative tone. So long story short, I'll summarize that. So this is before that new VP started. So I'd already, maybe that's probably why my tone was like, I already knew that I was leaving. So maybe my tone with that guy was not where it should have been. But so they did a group interview, which I'd never been a part of. So imagine you're down, we're at Glendale Arena. I can't remember what it was called at the time. And there's this room like, you know, to the side of the rink. And there's like this big open space. Like maybe it was maybe like in their Lexus club or something. And so there's like 35 people that have flown in from all over the U.S. to interview for these roles. And what did I do? I brought a business plan. Only person. Only person who brought anything remotely close to that. And it was called, I still have it today. It's called How to Sell Hockey in the Arizona Sun. And basically it was this five, six page business. And I talk about how we're going to compete against the Phoenix Suns for, you know, dollars how we're going to position hockey as more than just hockey and being about family time and entertainment and growing your business. I realized that really early in my sales career. There's something, maybe it's because I worked for like the worst teams. And so you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't like in Tampa, you know, I couldn't sell the Rays. Like my first year, they were like the fourth worst team in baseball, fifth worst. And then the, the second year, they were the second worst team, maybe the worst team in baseball. So I had to sell the experience. I'm like, this is family time. This is you getting to know your client. And so you know, I put together this business plan. And again, I was one of, I was the only person who got a job from that entire, all those people who flew in. I don't even think they paid for it. They might've paid for it. I don't, they might not have paid for it. And it was because again, I came prepared. And that's a theme for me in almost all my promotions. My first promotion to leadership at CareerBuilder, my promotion, my getting the job at Glassdoor. I've used that technique over and over again to get these roles. And then, yeah, what happened is, look, I thought in sales, and this is, it was a really good learning lesson for me. That if you are a top performer, then you're, you know, untouchable. And I had this boss, and and this is also like not great leadership too. I mean, I won't put it on him, but, you know, he would go and get drunk with us at happy hour. And so all my sales leaders, you know what I'm talking, you can, I see you virtually, right? I can see you, (laughs) you know? And and so, but but what that does, it sets a tone, especially if you're young, it's like 25, 26 at the time that blurs the lines. And so like in a playful way, he sent me some email giving me crap about something I did. And I said, F off, blah, 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 blah. And then a day later, I got pulled in the room and fired because, and I, I was just in shock. I was just like, I can't believe I'm getting fired, you know? And it was, I'm crying, driving home, calling my girlfriend at the time, listening to the train, like drops of Jupiter, like, oh, my life is over. My career is over. Like it was, I mean, I, I have like very vivid memories of that whole scenario going down because it was a good lesson. It's like, look, moving up in your career isn't just about being really good at the job that you're doing now. It's about, getting skills for the next role. It's about the, not politics, but managing up, you know, and those are just things I didn't appreciate. I just thought that if I just came in, put my head down, did my job. And I've seen other sales leaders give this advice. There's another sales leader. Actually, I saw a post he did last week and I I I really disagreed with one of his points, which was, you know, put your head down and work in that. I think that's terrible advice. I think you need to get visibility with those people. You need to understand what they're looking for in leadership and architects and the things you're doing in your day-to-day around that. We can talk about that more. But yeah, the Coyotes is a good learning experience. And it also was, it got me out of sports. And I was like, just terrified to even like apply for another job in sports. And 
I did, I was in, this is Phoenix in like 2007. So like the housing market's taking off. So I went to work with one of my clients for a little bit and then applied at CareerBuilder and almost didn't get the job because I was, uh, you know, like overqualified at the time. Oh, because what was the job? It was an account executive. Yeah, it was an account executive. And you were overqualified because... I'd already had like three years of experience. I'd led a small team before. So I almost didn't get it. But I remember that interview very specifically too. I, maybe I didn't learn too much like like non-hubris. I remember telling the hiring manager who was eventually my boss, she was like, because she had me sit with this guy. And I'm listening to this dude on the phone. I'm like, this is your top rep? And I remember in the interview, I was like, if that is your top rep, I'm going to destroy it here. <laughs> Well, it's the confidence, right? I mean, you say hubris, but yeah, there is a tactful way to approach things. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting because as, you know, executives now that run companies in sales, right? So it's very meta in a way where we both run our own companies. And then we also work with other companies. Obviously, you consult for on the tech side, sales, optimization, et cetera. Yeah. And we on the talent side, and obviously there's overlap, et cetera. But the idea of, and I remember when I was early in my career, I loved, you know, being able to go and have drinks and, you know, socialize with the leadership. And I think nowadays people are trying to find other ways Mm -hmm. to engage with their team because alcohol, you know, does blur lines. And so I'm curious, you know, in terms of, you know, I've seen some of your posts about team building and leadership and what is your advice for companies where that sales culture used to yeah. be, hey, let's celebrate, you know, the celebratory culture too. Yeah. We crushed our number. We're doing such a good job. Let's go celebrate. And, you know, so I'm curious if obviously now with COVID, you know, it's a little bit harder to get people together to do that. But, you know, what's your stance on that now? And, and how do you advise for other leaders to you know, bond with their teams. Yeah, it's such a good... I mean, look, I, I would say this is something that, man, I, I've really evolved with over time too because I like all that stuff too. I love wine. I love golf. I love steak dinners. I love all that. All of those things, I love. I think, you know, it's a really hard question because I think what happens is you tend to repeat the sins of your father, right? So then as I go to career builder, you want to talk about go hard or go home. Holy shit. Like career builder, like it was like you were out till... 1 a.m. And they on purpose would start every meeting at like 7, 7.30. <laughs> you know, like, and man, you talk about three and a half, almost four years of like learning that lifestyle of like, you go hard, you, you do this stuff, and then you lock it up and you're ready for business. And I think for a lot of people that grew up in sales in the early 2010s and late 2000s, and definitely before that, they had that as well too. And then I went to Glassdoor, like I was emulating some of what I saw. And so like we would go out and do lots of happy hours and things like that. I think it's only can't, if I'm being very honest with myself, I feel like it's only over the last like maybe four, four years, five years where I've realized that it also does not create an inclusive culture. Meaning what it does is it creates a culture of like, if you like these things and those things are usually the things that your leader likes, then you fit. And if you don't, then you don't. And I don't know if I can pinpoint when I really started to become aware of it, you know, like an event. I mean, there's one event I do remember very specifically. I was asked to speak at this um, all-woman like entrepreneur uh, group or like a funding group, like all seed stage entrepreneurs. And I was the only male speaker. Was that in New York? Was that the... Um... W-E-B, isn't okay. it? Yeah. So in New York, and I had never been the only guy. 
and not only not the only guy, but like not the only guy by like a magnitude, right? And then when I went to dinner that night, I was the only man at the dinner. And again, this is probably 20, when this has been 2016, maybe 17, something like that, 2016, 17. And I think that really opened my eyes where I was sitting there going, oh, like I was very aware. And, you know, and now when I hear women talk about when they're in situations that are predominantly male and they have to be aware. And I think it was the very, one of the first times it kind of opened my eyes because again, when you're in this sales, when you grow up with that, there's these things that you almost accept it as like norms. Like you go out and you party and it's like this rah, rah, rah. And then when you start to get different experiences, you start to realize like, well, maybe some of those things aren't great. Like maybe there's smarter ways to do it. And not that you can't have elements of those things, but you can also have events that are, are maybe more inclusive. So I would say my thinking's evolved on this a lot. I definitely, you know, I guess used to, you know, architect more of like what I knew, but I think now I'm trying to be more conscious of, okay, how do we do things that, get the same impact, right? And that's what you're looking for. You're the impact, right? Which is like, people are excited and engaged culturally with not just with leadership, but with each other. And, you know, that could be, we, we just started this thing, which is like, what is it called? Like, I can't remember. We just, we've had two of them now, but it's like, basically it's like share outs every two weeks where people share their expertise. So the first one, I can't even pronounce it. It was on like how you like diagnose art. And then the one last week was on horology, which is the study of watches. And so different people are like, talking about like how these, and they're putting together these expansive decks. And so just trying to find new ways to get people engaged and talking. And I think a lot of executives are struggling with those concepts right now, but we're trying to, we have a monthly trivia. So every, we break into teams, there's team themes and it's, it's like during the work time, you know, it's, and so we're trying to do stuff that's during work time too. So it's not always happy hour and things like that. So it's a difficult thing to balance, but it, it's probably one of the biggest challenges we're going to face as leaders over the next two to five years is how do we build 100% virtual or hybrid cultures? And I think it's things like some of the things that we're testing, you know, have, have been really effective. Yeah, super cool. And so I'm curious, I saw on LinkedIn, and maybe it was LinkedIn, one of the social media sites recently that my guess is based off of your post that your lease for your office here was up at the end yep. of March. That's right. And so you guys are now, you've, you've always had a hybrid culture mm-hmm. yep. where you had people all over, you had various different offices, you had an office here, you had Manhattan. Yep. And uh, so, and it seemed to me like you liked going to the office. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. <laughs> but like financially, right? When you're looking at uh, how much you're spending yeah. on this stuff. And so, you know, I'm curious of, you know, obviously sure. what your future plans are for your company. And as you're advising other sales organizations, what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, we're in this weird flux, right? And, and it's so different from state to state, right? We're here in Texas, right? Texas, we're like, let's go, right? People, but you know, New York is a lot different. California is a lot different. Washington State, Chicago, London. I mean, and when you have people all over, you have to be conscious of this. So what, what we decided, and, and we went really back and forth in this, because you're right, like, there's a speed of communication. Like, that's why doing this podcast is so fun. I can see you. And, and I was reading, Stanford's been doing a lot of research on this that when with Zoom, we have this focused eye contact and we can't absorb things. And it actually is a higher mental lift and causes more fatigue. Whereas like when you're face-to-face, I can read that situation in like, you know, a millisecond. Zoom requires more lift. So I'm a fan of face-to-face. So what we're doing is, you know, we struck a deal with a co-working, uh, one of the largest co-working spaces, right? There's only a couple that fit the bill. And they have some pretty flexible options now. So we're going to have like a small 
office in one of here, and then everyone has all access passes. So they can use these when they want. And I think we're going to test that. And, you know, it's like now we've got, for example, like two people in Denver, right? And we've got a person in London and a person in Toronto. And guess what? Now all of those people can go into an office if they want to. All of those people can use conference rooms. So I feel like this hybrid model for a company that's our size, you know, 30 people or so is a really good model for us to do because no, we do. And people want to get back to face-to-face. So, so I think we're, you know, starting, you know, the next probably second half of the year, I think we'll start to do more like all hands together, more consistent details like that. And we're hearing it from our people that they want to do more of that. So that was a trigger for a lot of this. Totally. And it's interesting too, because it's like the inclusivity portion of it where there are some people that might not want to get on a plane and go see people. But if the, you know, so because we're wrestling with that as well, where we are doing a leadership retreat here in Texas in June for anyone who's a leader in the organization. And then we are doing full steam ahead planning an all company retreat. And we have over 70 people in the company. And, but yeah, I just, I think that, you know, after a year and a half of Zoom meetings and Zoom trainings and you know, all the various things that we've done where, you know, we have gotten creative and done some things, you know, fireside chats. And, you know, I, I read uh, Oracle cards, but it's like people that are interested, we sent them Oracle cards and they get to pick and we read about ah, you know, cool. what's happening in their lives. Snake oil game virtually, poker night. Yeah, um, yeah. And that is that most, a lot of these are during hours and some, you know, things we do after hours, like a poker night can take a little bit longer than like. Sure, of course. <laughs> yeah. And I think and, you can mix all that stuff in too. It's, it's, it's about finding the right balance. Exactly. And, but yeah, I mean, it's very interesting, especially having been, you know, people, when we worked at Career Builder and we can talk about your experience there. I mean, we were enterprise salespeople and as people that were, you know, and people understand, I think a lot of people do where we were supposed to go meet all of our prospects in person. I still remember one of the leaders reaming me. I got a meeting with the head of people or whatever the title was back then, HR at FireEye. That was in yeah, my I remember them. patch. And, you know, I obviously asked for an in-person meeting and, you know, they said, let's do phone. And I was like, okay, you know, we'll start with a phone meeting, account review or whatever. It was, <laughs> QBR. That's right. And this male leader looked at me and just was like, you never take a phone meeting with somebody. Now I was one of the top performers, you know, in our division in enterprise sales. I had just started. I'd never sold enterprise before. And actually that was a trigger for me to leave because it's like, I don't really like to be talked to like this. I, I think I'm doing a pretty good job here in 08, 09, slinging career builder. Yeah. <laughs> it's really right. hiring. Anyway, we can get back to your career. And so they thought you were overqualified for the account executive role. You come in there and what happened? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was again, it was another really pivotal like career moment for me where I realized... This is where I realized that sales was a science and that there, that there actually is a true path for sales. And what happened is I was in a training class. I think there may be like eight of us, eight or nine. And I was the second to last person who hadn't sold anything at the time. And my director, my boss's boss, I think he listened to one of my calls or something. I'd asked him to, something happened. And, and he goes, Jake, he goes, why aren't you following the script? I'm like, the script? 
<laughs> like the script. I'm not following like, a script. I am script. so good at this. I am Jake I don't Dunlap. Need it. I'm not following a script. And so, but then, you know, look, here, I've always had the ability to analyze myself without passing judgment. And I don't know where I necessarily picked up this skill, but I think it's one of the most critical skills for anybody to master is the, and not that I don't have my own pity parties and things like that. I'm not perfect, but I am able to kind of evaluate a current situation and not feel it and be like, I'm the worst. Like I said, I'll have like a little pity party and then I'll move on. But you know, what I said to myself, I said, look, how is this current strategy working out for you? Oh, wait, it's not, right? And so I did it. And I started like, you know, it's like, here's how you set the agenda. Here's how you run a discovery. Here's how you talk about what we do. Here's how you like walk people through it. And I'm like, let's do it. And Test sure it, enough, right? I started doing it. And look, did it sound a little robotic? Sure. But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my God, these people are like talking. Like they're giving me all this like business insight because I didn't quite understand the point of like understanding the business and how to tie it back. And it just started to, to work. And then I remember I had an- another moment in this like very, I had a lot of like these, in this like very time, this like end of 07, beginning of 08, right? No, uh, no, end of 06, beginning of 07. And I remember I was sitting with my leader. They used to have these things called Y cords. Okay, this is before all your headsets were Bluetooth, which basically was like, they would plug into your box and you would be plugged in. So your leader would Y cord with you. Like, you, you know, they could hear things. And I remember she goes, Amy, she actually lives here in Austin now. She uh, pulled me out after the call. She's like, Jake, you talk over people. It's like, I did not talk over people. We play the call back. Like, holy shit, I talk over people. And she taught me how to use the mute button. And so I still do it to this day. I ask a question. My tendency, and I don't know if you're like this too, is like, I'm, I get hyped up. Excited. And you so, have so many things to say. And so I learned how to hit the mute button. So I learned this process for how to run a discovery. I learned how to hit the mute button and just let people talk. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, these people just keep talking. They keep telling me all this stuff. I asked one question. They, they answer all this. And so I closed 60,000 in new business the next month. So I went from zero to 60,000 in net new business in, in 30 days by following this process. I'm like, holy crap. Like this, it was like the biggest light bulb. I'm like, sales is a science. There is, a, and I still believe this. And, you know, maybe it's naive of me, but I really feel like we're headed toward anybody who knows the whole methodology game, they all have flavors of things that are very similar. You might phrase something a little more like this, but the process is very similar. You get a meeting with an end user, what's your next step? You need to get more of their team on board to get excited. And then you need to get a meeting with the decision maker to go and get budget approved to do a, pro- a trial or do some type of proof of concept. And then you move forward. If you get a meeting with the decision maker, you got to get them excited to executively sponsor it. Then you got to get a demo with the end users. Then you got to get their team excited. And then sales is not, we like to think of sales as super variable. It's really not. There's just patterns of behavior. And my time at CareerBuilder taught me that. And I was able to see it play out. And I got promoted to leadership in two months later. My boss left and I got promoted two months later. So I went from a zero on the board to three months later getting promoted. And I got promoted over someone who had been there for two and a half years because I went to my boss. This is the second big learning that I had in this very short period. I went to my boss's boss. And that's another thing. Stop talking to your boss about the promotion you want. You have to talk to your boss's boss because they're the ones that promote you. And some people hated on this and were like, what do you mean you go around your boss? I'm not saying you go around your boss, but it's your boss's boss that promotes you, not your boss. So your boss is going to tell you what they think gets you promoted. Your boss's boss is the one who actually does it or whoever that leader is in that new division that you want to get to. Because you'll be a peer with your boss if you get promoted or that person could get promoted and then it's that person's job, but they don't really know. Right, yeah, I think that's really interesting. They think they know, yeah. 
Right. Well, they've been there X amount of years or whatever it is. And that's is. how they did it. And they're going to tell you how see, they did it. And yeah, they see patterns of, but things are always changing. And it's like, just because something was done somewhere a certain way for however long, it doesn't mean it's all, actually, if you, you know, if at bets we were still doing the same things I did 10 years ago, you know, I mean, there's some greatness in that. Of course. But there's also evolving and, you know, continuous improvement. Now, I'm curious, because you mentioned the boss left. Mm-hmm. So you got promoted. And I see a lot of this, and we've done it at bets too. And uh, I'm curious your opinion, because I definitely have mine on, like, is that a good best practice? It depends. I mean, I like. I think about my first two and a half years of leadership. I was a top tier leader and pro- and one of the worst leaders. I would say, like, I had definitely had some sharp corners, tears, and and things. You know, but, tears but, coming from people that worked yeah, for you. Yeah, not. I mean, probably myself sometimes too, but <laughs> definitely that. You know, I was hard on people, and and I still am to this day. You know, like it, it. There are certain things that you learn about yourself as a leader that are that you round off these corners and you find the right people to help complement you as you grow and you realize situations that are going to be triggers for you and things like that, especially when you're passionate and you're excited about and you care, right? There's nobody who's ever worked for me who can ever walk away and say, Jake didn't care. Jake cared about me. He wanted me to be successful, right? Now, sometimes the delivery might have worked perfect for this person and not so perfect for this person, which is something that evolves over time. But no, I think the thing is, you know, when I had that conversation with with Evan, he said, Jake, here's the three things that I look for. I look for, are you leading your team in activity? Are you showing the, the day-to-day I'm putting in the work? Too many salespeople think, and leaders in general, I think, they think that being top at sales is the prerequisite. That's where you get it twisted. That's where people make the mishire. Being good at sales is a prerequisite to even open the conversation. The rest is, are you a leader in the day-to-day stuff, that grindy stuff that people might not want to do? And two, like, are you already a mentor? And, and not just a mentor, but are you, you know, putting in the work? Are you leading trainings for your team unsolicited. And so I had two or three months to just do that. That's what Evan told me he wanted to see. I started doing it. Every day, I would get in early and leave a little late. I'd make sure I was number one or two on the activity leaderboard, right? Continue to hit my sales numbers, right? This person had been there for two and a half years, so, so her sales numbers were more than mine consistently. But consistently, I was destroying my quota and meeting it, but I was doing the other things. I was, hit, I was showing the work the day-to-day. I was showing that I had a repeatable process. That's the fourth thing really tough to be a sales leader if you don't have a repeatable process, right? And I talked about like how I got to that process. And so I went in, I had my business plan, of course, because I knew what our territory was. I knew our account penetration by state. And I laid it out. He didn't have to think about what I was going to do in my first 90 to to 12, 12 months. I told him, I said, here's the plan. And I got references. The other thing I did, all the people who were my peers who I was going to be their boss, I got them to write me references before I even got the job. So I, I went in with a sheet. I found it. I have this sheet now of like, 12 testimonials from my current peers about why I should be their boss. So basically, what happened wasn't your boss left and you got promoted. It was you had been laying the groundwork for some time about what your career path, your desires for your own personal career path, leveraging your boss's boss as a mentor and you know being ready to go when the opportunity opened itself up. That's it. You got. You have to prepare. Opportunities to a soul cycle and structural. You'll, you'll appreciate this. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. But he said it, and this is a few years ago. It's like opportunities come in pieces. They don't come in chunks. And so if you're not taking that little opportunity to lead that training, if you're not taking that little opportunity to 
put in that extra 30 minutes or to take off time if you need to take off time. Opportunities don't come in this big package and now then you prepare for them. It's you've got to be preparing for them every day. I call it, you know, I've started to label it more. It's like 80, 15, 5. 80% of your time focused on the now, 15 in that mid to short to midterm, and 5% of your time on the long. And that's where you're building skills. That's where you're really taking ownership over your career and where you're trying to go. And, and too many people are so focused on the now, not realizing it is your career, people. It is your career. It's not your company's career. It is your career. And are you investing in yourself? Are you making sure that you're doing what you need to do to, to be successful tomorrow? And like, you know, as we talk about how I got the job at Glassdoor, it's it's similar. Super interesting. You're at Career Builder. Yeah. And oh my God. So I still remember, we're going to tell this story on the pod. Um, Great. <laughs> my favorite Jake Dunlap story of when we were peers at Career Builder. When uh, Brent Rasmussen, he was the president of the company and he came out to visit our office in San Mateo. And, uh, very unprofessionally of me at the time. I took this opportunity. So I think we were both had a lot to learn in our careers. I was, oh, we were both around sure. I was like 29. Yeah, 29. 28, yeah. yeah, I we 29 at the time. And so I take the opportunity to fill Brenton. And I remember later when I was in Chicago, we had lunch. I was like, Brent, do you remember when I told you I didn't like Pivotal? And Pivotal was our CRM at the time. It was even then very dated. Most companies that were you know, were using Salesforce, much better technology. And he had suggested that I get a temp. I have Nick, our boss, get me a temp. So I was ecstatic. I thought this was like the best thing. I was like, this is great. So I walk up to Nick's door and your cubicle, we sat right next to each other, was right around the corner. So you overheard me fill Nick in on the temp <laughs> situation. dropping for no reason. I know. Well, I'm sure I wasn't being quiet about it. It was like, oh my God, I, you know, Brent says I get to, you know, he's like Nick's boss is boss's boss. I don't know how many levels, but he yeah, was like way more senior. And I still remember you came around the corner and you're like, who do you think you are? Like, you should be <laughs> entering your own uh, stuff into Pivotal. And you think that you're too good to put your own <laughs> stuff in there. But it's interesting because we've told this story because then I ended up leaving and starting bets. And the next time we met in person, you had become the VP at Glassdoor. Yeah. And it was not that long after. Yeah, maybe a year, maybe less. Maybe yeah, when months. did you start at Glassdoor? Summer of 2010. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I left. I basically went full-time beginning of 2010 with Beth. Yeah. You know, so I, so I would love to hear the story because, I mean, VP is obviously Glassdoor, pretty awesome story, growth story there. And, you know, going from the role that you had at the time, which, which was a national account executive yeah. at Career Builder, which is like the most senior enterprise salesperson, you would manage, you know, Exactly. The teams, but it wouldn't be, you know, today necessarily if I was doing that search for the VP of sales at Glassdoor, yep. it wouldn't be like, oh, this person is definitely, you know, the spec I'd be looking exactly. for for a Series A company at the time. We just had raised Series A. Yeah. And then we raised B. Yeah. The next year, 2011 from Battery. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we had just, just raised a Series A. Just raised it. Yeah. Okay. And... Fill me in. What, yeah, why'd you take the meeting? What, yeah. Yeah, so, so, you know, it goes back to that, what I was talking about before. And again, like, it's really easy to talk about these decisions that I made like I was some, like, career genius. Like, but it was much more so if I, I always take opportunities, right? So 
let's talk about it career builder, right? So I've been in the same leadership role for two and a half years. Both years, I was the number one team out of 20 inside sales team and percent to quota president's club for my team. I had more promotions than any other, any other team in the entire company to the next level. Like I'd done what I could do in that role. And the next level up in leadership was managing people that were like two years older. And like I'd already kind of proven that I could do this. So I just looked at myself as 28. And I said, look, what's the skill I need to learn next? Do I need to continue to get better at a leader of these reps? Or do I need to learn enterprise sales? How am I at 29, 28 going to go lead grown-ass men and women and tell them about, here's how you close a deal with Intel if I didn't do it? And so I hinted at it there. The other thing is in 2006, before the meltdown, CareerBuilder started a program that was, they would pay for your MBA if you applied. Okay, I went to Missouri State. I had a 2.9 GPA, whatever. I didn't know that I would do that, need this. So I did it. Cribbler paid for me to That's get my funny. MBA. Paid for me to get my MBA. Got my MBA at Arizona State. Worked full time. Went to school ten plus hours at night every week for eighteen straight months and got my MBA. So then I go back into the field, right? So I'm like, I, I talked to Nick, who you mentioned. Said uh, I knew him as a peer, as a leader, right? Even he's a leader of a different group, but we knew each other from leadership retreats and things like that. I said, look, man, I need to get enterprise sales experience. Like I'm ready to get out of Phoenix. He's like, let's do it. So moved to San Francisco was a major account executive, then got promoted to national account executive in yeah, 2000, early, maybe early 2009 or 10, it would have been 2010. So at that time, I, wasn't, I was 29. I was the youngest national account executive in the company out of like 75 enterprise reps. Why? I treated it like learning. I was trying to work myself out of the job. I'm like, okay, what's the enterprise motion? What's different? Enterprise is this. Okay, learn that. Okay, learn that. Every job is a learning to get you somewhere. And I don't think people are... And I treated it like that. I'm like, I'm going back in the field for a year, year and a half tops. And that is it. Like, I didn't go back into the field to become an expert seller. I'd already gotten a certain set of skills. I needed to learn the enterprise motion. And as soon as I started to see repeatability in the things that I was doing with enterprise sales, getting meetings with the, the chief people or the chief talent acquisition from Intel, I got that meeting. Getting meeting with the CEO of Kempton Hotels, I got that meeting. Right? Leverage Brent in one and then I can't remember somebody else in the other one. But but I started to, to get the nuances between an upper mid, like a transactional mid-market, upper mid-market and enterprise. And once I learned that motion, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go be an AVP in one of these regions. And what happened is similar to you, I sat down with our VP at their RAV or VP or AVP, whatever it was at that time. And he's like, yeah, Jake, you just keep putting in the work, man. Yeah, things are going really well. I crushed my quarterly business. I'm like, put in the work. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I did That's put in not, the work. I don't know. And it's not that I would have put in another six months to a year. It was just not... I feel like they, even though we talked about my career arc and what I was trying to do, why I went back in the field, why would the number one manager in this group choose to go into the field? It wasn't for the money. I didn't care about the money. And just at that time, a recruiter had hit up somebody in the Phoenix office who then hit me up about the opportunity at Glassdoor. And I said, all right, I'll take a call. That meeting happened at, the, at that time. They had no, I mean, there's, they had no clause leaving. But then once they understood, like, hey, this is a chance to be, it was director when I started. You know, as the 21st employee at Glassdoor, something like that. Employee number 21, first sales hire. And, you know, and I've told that story too, that my offer letter, they rescinded the offer from a person who had like, I think probably 16, 17 more years experience than I did. Because what had I done? Business I, plan. I had put together, I definitely <laughs> put together a business plan. But also like, what had I done? I'd proven I could be a successful leader. I'd proven I could be successful in this field. I was scrappy. I was hungry. And that's what you want in that Series A, B, C, VP of sales. I didn't know that at the time, but that's 
why they hired me in retrospect. Like I wasn't so far removed from the field where I wasn't out there. And we closed 24 of the Fortune 100 in the first year. Like they knew that I was that guy to get them, you know, that hustle, Those hustle, initial hustle. deals yeah. too. Yeah. And building the team, right? Yeah. Like you could do both. And I think that was really interesting and it was super fun. And it, Glassdoor was interesting, right? Because you had worked at a large... Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was I'm just thinking how, I'm thinking of how naive I was. I, just imagine this board meeting, okay? Imagine my first board meeting at Glassdoor. Okay, here I am. I'm 30, 30 years old, maybe just 30 and 31. I'm sitting next to Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley is arguably like, I think he was like VC of the year last year, the year before. Richard Barton, who started Expedia... Zillow, chairman of the board at Glassdoor, like CEO of TripAdvisor, and like, like, and then Niraj from Battery, like in the series. Like, I'm sitting next to you. I have no, I have no clue the room I'm in. Like, I am so clueless. I'm like, look, dude, I'm just a sales leader. Like, I don't know. I didn't know the startup game, right? I had, I had known the corporate game. And what I was laughing is just thinking about these. Bill Gurley's like this giant human. And like, I just remember, I'm like, I had no clue. I'm like, I am in a room with some of like the like, smartest people in this whole game. And I had no clue. I think if I did have a clue, maybe I'd have played things a little different. But <laughs> but, it, it, but it is really interesting to sit and reflect sometimes on like that experience and like just how much exposure that I got at Glassdoor that obviously has you know, shaped the work we're doing at CareerBuilder and, and beyond. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was kind of getting at, right? Because you'd worked for this big company, right? It's not like Fortune 1000, but Curbolder was a big sales they were the organization. Beast about them. Yeah. And a lot of politics. And like most of our job was renewing deals and upselling. Right. And trying to figure aggressively, out aggressively though. How like, to grow yeah. the business that was incumbent and make it bigger. And when we were there, you had been there much longer, but I was like, I inherited these accounts and now it's 0809. Like, how am I going to find money out there when, you know, they're just not hiring yeah. as much as they did last year. I remember the, remember the taking the $0 accounts and getting $5,000 deals because they had realized that like, how much weight was put on continuing to grow. And th- there was a ceiling, right? Like it, you, you have somebody who's spending $500,000 on career builder. And you're supposed to grow that by 30% yeah. every single year. There gets to be a point where you kind of sell all the career builder that you can to that particular account. Well, at least you have, opinion. yeah, you'd have to go and find it. Like I, I was traveling all over California, rural California, because it was Catholic Healthcare West. And now it's, I think it's, what is it now? It's, uh, I can't remember what it is now. Dignity. Dignity. That's right. And I was going, I mean, I've been to every part of California because I was going, I'd sell $5,000 to this person, 10000 to that hospital, 5000 to that hospital. And that's what it was. I mean, that job was a growth job. It wasn't retention. Reten- we got paid like nothing on retention. So like, it was like, it was a sales job, but that was good. You know, there's nothing, God, I can't imagine if I started my career as an SDR or account executive and I didn't have that experience. How do you generate meetings at scale? How do you grow, how do you get people in the door and then you grow those relationships. And, and those, those skills, learning those early on, whereas you know, a lot of sales roles are so siloed now, right? That, that you don't learn those same skills. Well, but it's a lot more scalable, right? Because the SDR role is really teaching. I thought, I mean, Kribbler to me, like the, the sales training and culture there is one of the top. Like if you talk to people about 
who produced high-performing salespeople, it was CareerBuilder. Absolutely. And, you know, there's some other organizations that came before, but it was very much sink or swim. And it, you know, it wasn't yeah. quite the boiler room of like, look to your left, look to your right. Yeah. But it was pretty close for that day there were some. Age. There were some, yeah, elements of that. And so now I think, you know, it's on the leadership to set your, yes, you hire really good people. Some people might not work out, but it's on us as the leaders of the company to set people up for success. And CareerBuilder did a great job. They did have great training. They, uh, but they also had very high standards and they exactly. weren't afraid. And, uh, but my point is when you went to Glassdoor, there was no, you, you were just starting to take it to market. So it was absolutely greenfield territory, but also trying to figure out, okay, you know, who likes Glassdoor, Right. Like people like it because they can like individual people that might be looking at going to a company, but a lot of companies didn't like Glassdoor oh, yeah. because it's a really you know, and we know like it's a place where yes people write yeah. positive reviews, but it's also a place for people that aren't thrilled with their ex- times, experience to go happens. and take it out online in a very public platform, yeah. and so you know. It's interesting because you said you brought in 23 of the Fortune 1000 first year that you were there. And so obviously for larger companies, it's a really great fit. So I just wanted to... And that team that you built too. I mean, you brought in some ringer people that hadn't really quite proven themselves yet in sales. Like a little bit, but not like who they are today. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the process. Like I can build and I I still, I say this to this day, like anyone who talks about we only have A players is full of shit. And again, it goes back to the process. I can build an army of B players. If you are willing to come in and learn and execute, I can teach you a process. And what I figured out early at Glassdoor, I figured out really early. Nobody was allowed to talk about reviews at Glassdoor. We talked about candidates because at the end of the day, like I'll never forget the head of talent for United Healthcare Okay, it's not a very small company. United Healthcare. <laughs> I'm at a trade show. Probably, I think it's maybe my first trade show. And of course, I'm at the booth at the time. Oh, so you're that company that has all the bad reviews about us. The first thing out of her mouth. Of course. And we just pivoted the conversation. Hey, let's talk about it. Hey, let's pull up your... What we did is I was able to work with a product team and we were able to get very detailed profile data. I said, look, I get it. Let's do, Cisco, look, there's 250,000 people Cisco. visiting your profile, okay? The number one job they're interested in is software engineer. 25% of them have a graduate degree. Do you want to have a conversation? Yes. We didn't talk about it. And I was able to really, again, it goes back to, I talked about this when I sold tickets for the raise. I sold quality time with your family. The reviews do not matter. Our mousetrap to get people is not your concern. The outcomes we produce are the only place you can go digitally. You couldn't go to Indeed or CareerBuilder or Monster to find an audience of this caliber, period. And whenever I go to you and say, look, your profile has tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of views and they're this quality, you know, like getting meetings was not our team's problem. We figured out how to get meetings early, quick. Right. Yeah. Well, and then quickly getting past the content that was there. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of... We didn't talk about it. Just never talk... The, the key is people don't even know what they sell half the time, right? They focus on the product and not the outcomes, right? Like... I don't sell, you know, outreach. I sell, you know, engagement. I sell filling the funnel. I sell quota. I sell growth. I sell raising your next round. I don't sell outreach. I help, I'm going to help you company. My job is to help you to raise your next round. Too many people don't really understand. They can't take it those next steps that we're talking about. About Okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean? Does that mean? And I think when I was building teams early, 
I could nail that value prop really quick of what's in it for them. And so then we could scale fast. When you get into the product feature world, and yeah, I mean, it's very easy to be like, oh, we don't need this right now, which is, you know, the number one thing is like not right now because, yep. you know, like with the tactical nature of outreach, it's like, well, my people, you know, don't use it enough to <laughs> where it's like, okay, like, and we don't have to get into the whole outreach situation. So Glassdoor, and I don't know if you're able to share the numbers. Yeah, but sure. No, I can. Yeah. Okay. It was yeah, what, we, zero revenue. Probably we went from, we yeah, it. I think we're doing like, I think they could close like 60 grand in deals. And by the time I left, we were doing, we were on a million a month run rate. And I had hired 40 something people in 16 months or so to start. And a lot of dumb mistakes, just not nailing training and onboarding and hiring profiles were probably like the biggest ones during that period. But again, like we had, a, I, it, that's why I took the job. Like I, I saw the mousetrap. Like I could see him like, like, look at, you know, even though this was 2010, I could see like reviews are taking over our consumer life. Reviews will take over our business life. And I could see that they were, that this was going to be big really, really early. Not, not even knowing that we had raised money from all these great people. Like that had, I don't even think I knew what Crunchbase was. I had no clue who our investors were at the time. Like this was not a like, Jake is the genius who found this beautiful company. Like it was like, I knew that space well. And I knew that I could, I knew I could build a team in that space because I came from it. Oh, and you got to be you know, the VP of sales yeah, exactly. at a company that you believed in. But I didn't know what a unicorn was. I didn't, I didn't know, like, I didn't, I didn't know what a unicorn was. I didn't know. Well, they didn't weren't know any a of unicorn. This, they were not a unicorn. At, at the time, but I didn't know that I was like, that that's what we were working toward. You know, like I didn't, <laughs> I knew none of this, none of this mechanics. Were, I've had a whole <laughs> startup. I knew nothing about it. That's interesting. And did it come up when you were interviewing? I don't remember it coming up, no. I mean, I'm sure they were like, yeah, we've raised from top tier VCs. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's the job. I just want to work. You know, like, well, I just wanted to. And at Career Builder, like, venture capital companies weren't like hot. We weren't supposed no. to be targeting them. No. It wasn't really a thing. And I definitely think that became more of a thing. I mean, I even remember early days of bets. It was like, we... I had to learn. And Katie Hughes, I had her on the podcast uh, oh, awesome. last week. And she's like, how she got the job at DFJ was that started becoming our strategy. I remember that. We're like, let's go and target the VCs. Because we were seeing this pattern I remember where that. they were you know, referring us a lot of business. We're like, how about we just go talk to them about what we're doing yep. with their portfolio, which ended up being huge for us. Yep. But I never... It took us seeing that pattern over time to then do something about it strategically. So you got fired. From I Glass did. Store. Yeah. What happened? It was a, a couple of things. Again, like the problem with my career has never been producing. I didn't understand politics. At Career Builder, sales was king. So I didn't know how to play nice with like finance or legal or these other. And I like, <laughs> I didn't understand this thing, like this idea of relationship capital. And you know, it's a really important thing to understand over time. And I made, I made a similar mistake when I was at Chartbeat, you know, and that's when I'm like, okay, what, you're really good at the work. You really enjoy it. Why are you doing this for other people? And that's when I started Scaled. It was after Chartbeat, you know, I had an incident with the CFO where we didn't see eye to eye. And again, destroyed our numbers, went from one to four million in less than nine months or something from a uh, run rate. And, you know, I just sucked at it, dude. I sucked at politics and I just wasn't able to play nice with others. 
And I just real, and then that's when I'm like, okay, well, what's next for me? And I saw the trajectory. The career of a VP of sales in startup world is very laid out for you in many thousands of careers. It's like every two to four years, you're going to get fired for one reason or another because they want the slightly older person who's managed a bigger team. And it's one of the biggest flaws that we have in sales right now that's stopping true innovation and true growth is we measure the size of a sales leader's success based on the size of the team she or he has led. And it's one of the biggest fallacies as we start to build teams in the 2020s and 2030s. The, the winners are going to be the teams that are the most effective and efficient as opposed to like, I got to 100 million with, you know, you know how it is like, oh, this person managed a team of 150. Well, this person also got to 150 million and they did it with 50. Guess who's actually probably a better leader? That person. Totally. Way more efficient. And I think we've got a problem in sales right now. It's, it's a combination of ego and comp where you're incentivized. I mean, like a class, I did not have a choice at Glassdoor. They're like higher, 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 more, more bodies. And I'm throwing it into this system that's like mediocre at best, right? Like this is a year one of spinning this thing. And too often, we're, we're continuing to, it goes back to repeating the sins of the father, right? We're going back and we're, we're continuing to try to build scale and judge success. It, but now we have all this technology and buyer and customer trends that have changed, but yet we're still kind of scaling pretty similar to what we did 10 to 15 years ago. Even though we have such a leap in consumer knowledge and information and technology to make your teams more efficient and effective. And so I think it's one of the biggest challenges that leaders are going to face going forward. And for, so for me, I, you know, I was following this recipe. I didn't really know it. This is my first go. I didn't know this startup world. I didn't get the right mentors probably in retrospect. But you know, those are, that was probably my biggest mistake. I didn't get enough mentors early in my leadership career to help me to see around corners. And, you know, JK, just FYI, like, go make friends with the CFO. You know, you want them to be your friend or the legal person. And so that would be my advice to any kind of first time, second time leader is don't get mentors who are the step above where you want to be. Get mentors who are two steps above because now they've seen it at least once or twice and then they can help you to see around corners. And I think, I think that was where I made mistakes early in my career. Well, and I, I think um, a lot of the venture world is very much more product focused and career builder was sales focused. And so... That hurt me. Yeah, that hurt me in understanding the nuances of politics because I was used to like, I didn't, I, I never had to learn that muscle until I was already in the seat and I didn't have the right mentors to help me learn it at the time. And so I didn't understand how to do that. And so even though I was hitting my numbers, etc., the fact that I could not play nice with others became a distraction. Coupled with, let's call this two, we had hit this threshold where... It's usually the time. Well, Jake's 31, 32. Yeah, 31 at the time. Like, is he going to be the guy who's going to get us to 50 million? And usually in a startup world, the answer is like, you don't even get a chance to do it. That they're going to layer you. And we had already started to have those conversations too about, well, whoa, wouldn't it be great if we brought in this person? I'm like, yeah, sounds good. And I didn't realize what was <laughs> happening. So there was like this culmination. It was time. Like, you know, I think even if I would have been there for six months more, maybe max, just because I would have got layered and I would have gotten frustrated and quit. Totally. And okay, so when did you started scaled when? In 20, technically like into 2012, but 2013, really. So we're pretty much out of time. So I think that, you know, what we can do is obviously, real quick, for anyone that doesn't know what scaled does, tell them. Yeah. And, um, Wrap it up with like final words, any final words, of words wisdom. some trends. I'll drop some some stuff for people. So, so yeah, you fast forward in it. And what I love about what we've talked about today is that, you know, what I did when I built Scaled is, you know, 
I saw sales teams needed more tactical support. That I worked with consultants at both Glassdoor and then at Chartbeat. And consultants like laid this piece of paper. They're like, hey, here's a 50-page document on what you should do. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with any of this? And so I was like, look, what sales teams need is they actually need tactical support, you know, enablement, operation support, plus strategy. And so fast forward to today, it's been eight plus years. We are a sales consulting and strategy organization working with both huge organizations like LinkedIn, Thermo Fisher, et cetera. But primarily, you know, that's probably 20% of our business, companies that are trying to modernize. But primarily, it's companies that are growing and scaling, you know, pun intended, right? Like they're going from that first five to 20 reps, or they're going from 20 to 200. And there's all kinds of things that break, whether it's around the, you know, playbooks and methodologies that you're using or become outdated or not tight enough, or it's your sales operations. And again, sales operations and revenue operations are going to be roles that need to have a seat at the table in the future. So we both help with the strategy, but we also have the tactical implementation team. So we do more sales technology implementations than almost anyone in the world from like a pure sales tech standpoint every year. But we also have strategy individuals and enablement. And so it's really, you know, think of it like a consulting plus agency model is what we do, you know, really supporting hands-on with sales teams and, and somewhat marketing teams. That's it. That's it. That's it. That, we just we, that, we went through it all in like the last eight years is summarized by like now. But, but no, I mean, I, I think it's, it's the most interesting time to be in sales ever right now. I'm super excited for it. I think the need for salespeople to up their IQ and truly be these consultants and consultative and helpful and supportive customers today are coming. They don't want the friction. I, my prediction, the inbound SDR role is going to be gone in five years. Gone, right? It's friction. I got to go talk to this person. Can you imagine buying anything where the first conversation you have to have somebody is like, um, so this, oh, can you tell me anything about the product? No. Like we are moving to a truly frictionless buying process. And salespeople in the sales profession, we've got to start to realize our job is to facilitate and guide and consult because these people are going to have access to more information. And so as you're thinking about the skills that you're learning, are you learning how to be collaborative? Are you becoming truly an expert in your industry? And these are things that are talked about before. But if you're not those things, buyers aren't going to want to talk to you, right? Gartner did a study that was released in November of last year that said 44% of millennials never want to talk to a salesperson in a B2B process. And I'm telling you right now, that is the, we are at the tip of the beginning of that trend to where self-guided processes, people having access to information are going to become more and more the norm. And so as salespeople and sales leaders, what are you doing to remove friction, right? Do I, I shouldn't say inbound should be gone completely, but it will only be for very specific cases because the goal will be buyers are going to be coming in with such a high level of intent that it's like, let's move them through the funnel or move them out. And so I just feel like we're in a really interesting time and the next five years is, is going to be you know, probably more different than the last 20 years combined would be my guess. Super cool. That's it. Well, thanks. Thank, Thank you, you for joining me. I love it. We got to do it face to face. Yes. Which is fun. Thanks, everybody. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at BetsRecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies. 